Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello from London, I'm Christiane and welcome to the Amanpour Hour. Here's where we're headed this week. Up first, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, California's first partner, talks gender equality in Davos and how surviving trauma shaped her mission. We won't achieve gender parity unless we address this culture where one and three women and girls are victims of both physical and sexual abuse in their lifetime. Also ahead, what the rest of the world makes of Donald Trump's landslide in Iowa. Outside the US, they looked at this with a sense of dread, but not surprise. Then, a shocking eyewitness account from a volunteer doctor just back from Gaza and Israel's reaction. Looking around the emergency department, my overwhelming impression was why are there so many children here? And from the archive. 33 years ago this week, US-led forces launched the first Gulf War. My report from Saddam Hussein's Iraq, a warning about Gaza today. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. 131 years, that's how long it'll take to close the gender gap, a sobering fact from the World Economic Forum, which none of us will be alive to see. But my first guest has made it her mission to accelerate that needle. She's an actress, a filmmaker, and an athlete who also happens to be the first partner of California, a title she coined after shunning the traditional first lady term. She is Jennifer Siebel Newsom, and her husband is a key Democrat force right now, Governor Gavin Newsom. Before heading to the governor's mansion in Sacramento, Newsom lived through some very deep personal trauma. She witnessed the tragic death of her older sister, just eight, who was run over by a golf cart. And then her encounter with predator Harvey Weinstein, who she accuses of raping her in 2005, and she testified against him in 2022. Newsom spent this week in Davos speaking to other women and allies on the urgent work of gender equality, and she joined me from there to explain this is a crisis. Jennifer Siebel Newsom, welcome to our program. Thanks so much, Christian, for having me. So there you are at Davos, and you are presenting uh, the California All Women Initiative. Can you tell me what this is? Well, let me just anchor sort of why I'm here with the fact that this is a crisis. Um, gender equity uh, has stalled. We uh, know that, you know, the World Economic Forum came out with a report that we will not achieve gender equity for 131 more years, and we won't achieve gender pay equity for 257 more years. So this is insane. Uh, so, you know, if we think about what's happening in our world with geopolitical instability, uh, a political divides, mental health, climate crisis, extreme wealth inequality, Part of that, I strongly believe, and I have you know, data to back it up, is that we haven't had 
diverse enough folks, in particular women, seated at the tables of power, making decisions when it comes to both the private and public sectors. And so if we can move more women into leadership, more of a care orientation into leadership, we will fix some of these seemingly insurmountable global problems that we're all confronted with today. How do you chip away at a mountain of more than a century or two centuries to get any kind of equity and any kind of parity in the important areas? Well, it's what I believe we're trying to do in California through California for All Women. So one of the first initiatives that we signed on to when my husband, Gavin, became governor of California was an equal pay pledge, basically committing at this point over 150 global companies headquartered in California to conducting an annual pay gap analysis um, analyzing their hiring and promotion practices and committing to equal pay best practices like pay transparency. Um, in doing this, we're moving the needle forward to close the pay gap. We have some of the strongest equal pay laws in the nation in California, and we're trying to turn those that gap into the smallest pay gap in the nation. Similarly, we've been championing women on public company boards. There was legislation, SB 826. What we've seen as a result of this legislation and our advocacy is that in 2018, 15.5% of board seats were held by women. Today, over a third of public company board seats are held by women. Um, interestingly, in 2018, 29% of boards had all-male boards in California, and today only 1% of public company boards are all-male boards. Can I ask you a little bit about how you have become so resilient? You, you have had quite a lot of trauma in your life. Your own sister, you know, died in a, in a sort of very tragic playtime incident, you know, with a golf cart. You yourself testified and took the stand against Harvey Weinstein in his sexual assault case. Uh, basically, you testified that he raped you in 2005. He denies that. But what made it important for you to stand up? And how has this trauma led you to take the public positions that you do? I experienced trauma at a very early age and um, never really healed from that trauma. Um, and then had experiences uh, related to a coach and um, Harvey Weinstein that um, informed my understanding of trauma in a way that I don't think we as a society still yet understand. And you know, I'm just a truth seeker and speaker and um, know that the damage that is done to women and girls and, and young boys, for that matter, who have been sexually assaulted and that we cannot have this culture anymore and that there is a culture of silence and complicity that enables those men to perpetuate the harm that they have done. And I'm a firm believer that most men are good men I have two sons myself, I'm married to a man, I have a very close relationship with my father. But sadly, it's a few men that do so much damage. I believe there's a statistic that 94% of sexual assaults are committed by 4% of perpetrators. And to me, if we can just hold those few bad actors accountable and educate more men and women for that matter, to speak up and out and not be complicit and not enable that we could create a healthier culture for women and girls. There's a study that came out recently that suggests that the cost to society 
of domestic and sexual violence is in the billions. The, the tangible costs are in the billions, but the intangible costs to a woman's uh, work performance and her life are in the trillions. Mm -hmm. And I know that we won't achieve gender parity unless we address this culture where one and three women and girls are victims of both physical and sexual abuse in their lifetime. One in three. It is honestly staggering when you hear the statistics of you, as you put them out. Your latest uh, documentary, most recent film, Fair Play, looks at the imbalance, as, as you're saying, in, in, in the work and other issues, particularly in, in, in work between men and women. What is important about investigating this aspect of, of, of imbalance for both men and women? So men need to model care at home. If men do 50 more minutes of care work a day or 40% uh, of, of domestic care work, uh, not only will their wives have more leisure time and less anxiety and depression and be able to pursue their passions and interests, their children will have better behavioral outcomes, better cognitive outcomes and healthier long-term relationships. And men themselves will be happier. They'll have better sex lives, greater longevity, um, be less likely to be on prescribed meds. Um, the list goes on and on of all the benefits, again, not just to the individuals in the family, but to the family unit. And we know from sociology that family is the backbone of communities and society. And American families are, are fragile right now. Uh, and we have an opportunity to Given the fact that the majority of American families are dual income households or single parent households, mostly run by women, and that um, we're living in, in, in an age where there is just um, so much coming at us 24-7 with modern technology and the demands, work pressures, et cetera, et cetera, that if we can socialize you know, our partners and our boys in particular to be care-oriented, to be partner-oriented, um, that there's value in care, that care is actually everything. Uh, we can create a, a healthier culture because what happens in the home is carried into the workplace. So if you have a more um, equitable, balanced relationship at home, those values are then carried into the workplace and we can transform corporate culture just as we can transform uh, public culture. Jennifer Siebel Newsom, thank you so much for joining us from Davos. Thanks for having me. It's great to speak with you. An incredible moment, important to speed up that needle. Up next, a gripping account from a volunteer doctor who risked her own life to go to Gaza. But first, a top European official breaks ranks and declares Donald Trump a threat to the continent and the alliance. How the rest of the world views the former president steamrolling his competition in Iowa. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the program and our letter from London. This week, what the world makes of the US political circus. Donald Trump's big win in Iowa this week amid stints defending himself in court, the 91 criminal charges and other legal fires he's fighting. The martyrdom card Trump's been playing since a loyal mob ransacked the US Capitol is apparently paying off. And now it's all but certain that he will be the GOP presidential candidate again. Joining me now in the London studio, two seasoned journalists, Emily Maitlis, who covers politics and America on her podcast, and Mark Landler, London bureau chief for The New York Times. Welcome, both of you. Thanks, Christiane. Okay, Thanks so, you know, we're a few days since Iowa and a few days, you know, before New Hampshire. We cannot deconstruct the minds of the American voters, but how, Mark, is the world reacting to Trump's blowout in Iowa? Well, I think... Christian, you'd have to say that the world has been looking for reasons to reinforce a conviction that I found in talking to people in a lot of countries, which is that there's an inevitability to Trump being not just the nominee, but being restored to the White House. So I think for a lot of people uh, outside the U.S., they looked at this with a sense of dread, but not surprise, because I think there's been a great sense that this is going down a certain track, and that's one more off-ramp that we've now avoided. New Hampshire will be the next off-ramp. Um, so that's my sense of it, that there was no surprise, almost a reaffirmation of a fatalism that exists around the world that Americans are going to re-elect us. Okay, can we just be clear? Re-elect? How? Why? Is that what you're picking up? Why would people, yes, that he's going to be the candidate, but automatically think he's going to be president again? Well, I would go back to that result and what you called a blowout, which was 51% of the Republican vote for Trump. And I'd say the number here that people are actually looking at that is leaving people jaw-dropped mm -hmm. is the 66% of Iowan voters who believe Donald Trump's lie, that they have been convinced that Donald Trump is the right president of this time and that his questioning of the legitimacy of Joe Biden is something that he's taken to Iowa. So I think all the reporting that we do should come actually from that prison, that he is an election denier, that he has managed to convince people of the lies that he's been telling for the last three and a half years, that he's using his 91 indictments as a fundraising tool. And I don't think that any of us can be covering your election, the American elections, without actually starting from that place. Mm -hmm. If that is not a sort of a black cloud across your forehead of everything that you're saying on air, of everything that you're writing and thinking about, then we're not doing our jobs properly. And I'm going to get back to that too, because there's been some criticism in the US about how the media covers this in, in view of what you're just saying. Mark, I just want to double down a little bit. Are people in the world sure that he's going to be, you say, this feeling of inevitability? Is it sort of once bitten, twice shy? They don't want to look stupid and say, of course, he couldn't win because he did in 2016? I think there's an element of that, yes. And, you know, I, I think if you drill down with people and you say, look, do you truly 
genuinely believe this is going to be the outcome, they will acknowledge we have no idea what the outcome is going to be. They've been surprised before. Politics is inherently unpredictable. U.S. politics these days is particularly unpredictable. So I think that sophisticated analysis of this in the, in the world at large acknowledges that nothing is inevitable here. A president who, as Emily says, is facing 91 criminal counts, the idea, or a, rather a candidate who's facing 91 criminal counts, that he could emerge as president, there's something slightly incredulous about that. So um, I think that it is a, it, it's more of an emotional feeling that if the country was capable of doing this once before and they see these kinds of numbers, this kind of incredible, resilient, unshakable loyalty on the part of MAGA nation, I think it just, it, it more resides in the pit of their stomach. Well, if it happened once before, it could happen again. We need to start planning as though it may happen again. Yeah. Except even that number, right? If you look at 51% of the Republican votes in Iowa, what you're, what, what, in Iowa, what you're really saying is, hang on a second, this guy isn't untried. He isn't untested. He is auditioning before his party for a job he's already done. He's already been president already, right? Interesting. So if you look at it that way, then you've got nearly half his party who do not want to see okay, him do it again. that is interesting. Yes. And therefore, I want to ask you about Plan B, as you just said, here in the world. There is a sense that some countries, certainly allies, are trying to trump-proof their politics for next time he may be in charge. Christine Lagarde, former IMF, now ECB chief, very well known to the US uh, elite politics as well as in Europe. She has basically broken ranks in a very surprising way, coming out and directly saying that Trump would pose a direct threat to the European continent and to the alliance if he was elected again. And she specifically said, just look at the trade tariffs, just look at the commitment to NATO service, just look at the fight against climate change. If only in these three areas in the past, American interests have not been aligned with European interests. And, you know, the commissioner of the EU says the US, you know, is very concerned that Trump wouldn't come because he said it to the aid of any NATO nation that is invaded. Do you detect any Trump-proofing? Well, it depends on the country and it depends on the leader. If you're a leader who views their interests as being closely aligned with Trump, you can already see uh, hedging, hedging of bets, people who style themselves in a way that they think would be congruent with a future Trump administration. I think an example of that potentially is in Israel, where Benjamin Netanyahu had a very comfortable relationship with, with Trump. It's easy to imagine that in the coming months, he might begin to think of that. That might enter his calculations, even insofar as he's waging the war in Gaza. Uh, is that true of someone like Putin, another person who's viewed as being sort of simpatico with, with Trump? I think that's also possible. Um, for allies, it's actually much more complicated. Yeah. Um, Rishi Sunak in the UK is a very ex good example. I, one of the, the major and I think correct fears that Europeans would have of, a, of another Trump administration is, what would that mean for NATO? Would he actually deliver on his threat to leave NATO? Uh, and if he did, it would be obviously a mortal blow to the alliance. It would also be a crushing setback for Ukraine. Uh, so what do you do if you're Rishi Sunak? Do you distance yourself? Do you say, look, that's American politics, I have no place? Or do you, as Jacob Rees-Mogg, a right-wing member of the Tory party, just did come out and say, I'd rather have Donald Trump than Joe Biden as the president because I think he's actually closer aligned and to us. And nobody will be looking more closely at who wins than Ukraine because they're, they're 
existence depends essentially on whether they get more aid. I want to go back to what you said about the media coverage. Again, it seems like the media is falling all over itself to cover every cough and sneeze and, you know, jump from campaign to courtroom that Trump is doing. This is what um, media critic Margaret Sullivan said this week about the coverage. In a constant show of performative neutrality, journalists tend to equalize the unequal, taking coverage down the middle, even though that's not where true fairness lies. And literally, you know, it's... So what, what is your reaction to that? I think there is a real fizzle and a real sort of crackle at covering the Iowa caucus, the New Hampshire primary. We all want to be talking about the horse race. We all want to be talking about the policies and about the stump speech and about the gaffes and about the, you know, tightening polls, all the rest of it. It's exciting. I get that. But I think unless you're cognizant that you are dealing with a race where one of the contestants is not going to abide by the rules, you're not doing your job properly. Because we've been there before. It's not like we don't know what happened last time round. What is the point of setting parameters and going, oh, he might be, you know, neck and neck with Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Oh, he might just be, you know, pipped to the post there. If you know that he doesn't actually stand by the results of that race, what are we doing, right? And I understand that in our coverage, you don't want to be the preacher. You don't want to be constantly looking backwards and going, oh, be careful because he might not do that. I don't think to my knowledge, that he has confirmed whether he would accept any future results of the 2024 election. So if that's the case, what are we doing? You know, you can talk about abortion policy in weeks or you can talk about swing states in poll numbers. But if we don't actually know whether he's going to accept the result, what, what game are we playing here when we just sort of treat them all as equal candidates? They're not. Emily Maitlis, Mark Landler, thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thank you. And coming up next on the program, a shocking insight into the huge civilian toll in Gaza from a British doctor who just returned from the war zone. I also feel ashamed and, and shocked that, that we're doing this to fellow humans. Welcome back to the program. Bullet wounds, burns, amputations, and orphan children. These are the realities of war that doctors in Gaza are dealing with after three months of Israeli bombardment. Last week, we showed you new evidence that more than half of Gaza's northern hospitals have been directly attacked since the fighting started. Israel says Hamas used many civilian structures as command centers. And the goal of this offensive, they say, is to ensure Hamas can never repeat a slaughter like that on October 7th. Still, the 24,000 dead in Gaza, according to the Palestinian health officials there, is causing the United States and its allies increasing unease. British doctor Deborah Harrington spent two weeks over Christmas volunteering at Al-Aqsa Hospital right in the heart of the Gaza Strip. And she joined me this week to describe what she saw. Dr. Deborah Harrington, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You've just returned from Gaza. You are an OBGYN and you went to treat women and children, I guess. What did you see there? Why did you even go? Um, I went because I've been to Gaza many times. Uh, I've been going since 2016 as part of a teaching group. I've never been in a conflict. Um, I've never been in these circumstances. And what I saw was um, in Al-Aqsa, which is in the middle area, was a hospital that was overwhelmed. 
Um, it was overwhelmed with numbers of inpatients. It was overwhelmed with emergencies, uh, trauma cases coming in all the time at a level that it simply wasn't set up to deal with. So what did you notice most? Uh, are they women, children, men, fighting age, fighters? Who so I think, they? so I was expecting in some ways that this was a war situation and, and therefore I was sort of anticipating that there were going to be perhaps young men um, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of casualties, you know, across the whole spectrum of society. But actually what I overwhelmingly saw was, was children. And on, on one day, I was thinking, this is New Year's Day. And there was one moment where I just looked at my watch and it was about two in the afternoon and we had mass casualties coming in. And in fact, it was from a, a school shelter um, where there had been um, bombardment and uh, blast um, and we had mass casualties coming in. And I looked around the resus room, which is where all the sickest patients uh, are taken, and out of the five patients in the resus room, four of them were children. One with an injury, with a horrendous injury, a shrapnel injury to the brain, um, weren't going to survive. Um, and then the other children with horrendous mix of, um, you know, open fractures, um, partial amputations, open chest wounds, horrendous lacerations from shrapnel to the sort of chest and, um, and, and head and burns. And... And that was every day, you know, looking around the emergency department. My overwhelming impression was, why are there so many children here? You know, there were so many children. And why were there so many children here? I don't know. Other than the bombardment, we were obviously taking casualties from the area immediately around the hospital. Um, and they were coming in because those areas were being targeted, were being bombarded, sniper fire, um, uh, shelling, um, and, that's what, and that's what we were seeing. And, you know, uh, alongside the horrendous casualties, there were, you know, many people that, ca that came in dead. Um, and uh, some of the scenes, you know, I, I never expected to see. I mean, I thought I was really well prepared for this. I had you know, thought about what I might see, but 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 that st struck me. You, you've been to Gaza, as you said, yes, many times. The health system there has never been fabulous, but there are a lot of hospitals. There are a lot of hospitals. What is the state now? Because we hear the whole health situation exactly. is collapsing. So I think there has been a sort of systematic dismantling, really, of, of the healthcare system. Um, it's almost like a kind of a fall, really, of, you know, one hospital falls after the other, after the other. And, and healthcare systems, healthcare facilities should be protected. They're there for, they're there for everybody. They're I want to play this soundbite because when you yeah. say should be protected, I talk to, you know, a former, you know, mega US commander who knows a bit about war and going after terrorists and civilians. This is what he said. I have felt that the hospital should have been kept open, Al-Shif in particular, but all of them, and treat the civilians in these hospitals, control them, though, ensure that the tunnels underneath them, headquarters or whatever is being done in them, yep. uh, is not allowed uh, and is eliminated. But again, they need to provide for the people without question. Uh, he's saying whatever the case in war, you need to provide for the people. Do the people have anywhere to go? They've got, they've got nowhere and they're getting less and less. How do you feel a as a doctor? I mean, you're a professional, just, do no harm. I, 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 I just feel desperate. I also feel ashamed and, and shocked that 
but we're doing this to fellow humans. Uh, you know, my, my, as you say, I, I'm a doctor. My, my whole career, my whole reason for, you know, for getting up in the morning is to, is to corny as it sounds, to go and help people. I mean, the obstetrician that spoke to me this morning said, you know, they have got people everywhere giving birth in the corridors and in the, in the halls. They haven't got staff to deliver them. They haven't got capacity in theatre to do cesarean sections. You know, babies are going to be asphyxiated, are going to die as a result of not being able to um, deliver mothers in a timely manner. They also said their neonatal unit is full of infection. It's full of babies dying from infection. They just can't cope and there isn't the capacity to deal with it because so many healthcare facilities have been dismantled. Dr. Deborah Harrington, thank you. Thank you very much. When we come back, I get the Israeli government response from the Prime Minister's senior advisor, Mark Regev. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the program. Before the break, we heard a doctor's first-hand account of the dire situation inside one of Gaza's barely functioning hospitals. And what happens to the people of Gaza and Israel the day after, if and when the fighting ever ends? I put that to Mark Regev, senior advisor to the Israeli prime minister. Mark Regev, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. My question to you is, General Petraeus, Senator Van Hollen, Leaders all over the world, the Secretary of State, the National Security Council, the President of the United States, of France, of the UK, everywhere, says, yep, you have a right to self-defense, but these civilian casualties are just too much. So my question to you is, is there not a military way to separate civilians and take care of civilians? As Petraeus said, he's been through many wars against terrorists in civilian areas. Was there not a better way? First of all, we don't want to see any civilians killed. And I repeat that. We don't want to see any civilians caught up in the crossfire between Hamas and the Israeli Defense Forces. But having said that, we're up against a brutal and horrific enemy who deliberately embeds itself, not just in hospitals, but in residential neighborhoods, in schools, in UN facilities, in mosques, and underneath Gaza, underneath the cities of Gaza, uh, where cameras often cannot go, there is a subterranean terror network of tunnels, of bunkers, of missile launching sites, of armories of command and control. Hamas has had more than 16 years to embed itself, and that's why this operation will take time. And though we're doing our best to avoid civilians getting caught up in the crossfire, Hamas has a deliberate strategy of, of, of using civilians as a human shield, making our job just so much more difficult. You see what's happening. There is a growing, I'm going to use the word coalition, of Israeli allies saying that there must be, in return for normalization, as you want with Saudi Arabia and others in the region, there must be uh, an absolute Palestinian process to statehood and an end of the occupation. 
The, your own prime minister has apparently completely said no to that. I'm going to just play a little piece of what he said in a speech to the nation. In any arrangement, in the foreseeable future, whether with or without an arrangement, the state of Israel must control the security of all the land which is west of the Jordan River. This is an essential condition, and it clashes with the idea of sovereignty. What can you do? That is a truth that I am saying to our friends, the Americans, and I've also blocked an attempt to force upon us a reality which will hurt the security of Israel. The Prime Minister in Israel must be able to say no, even to the closest of our friends, to say no when it's needed, and yes, when it's possible. So that's it then. No political solution. You're basically telling your biggest friends and your biggest military suppliers, the United States, that no, you won't consider that kind of political solution. I think it's very important to hear what the prime minister says in its entirety. He has repeatedly said that the Palestinians should have all the powers to rule themselves, but none of the powers to threaten Israel. And the second half of that formula, none of the powers to hurt Israel, is especially, I think, relevant following what happened on October 7th. We don't want to see ever again a repeat of that horrific attack on Israel by the Hamas terrorists or by any terrorists for that matter. And so the idea is to find a formula where the Palestinians can rule themselves but not be in a position to threaten Israel. That's the, I think that's the, the formula that can help us move forward and find solutions that will be good for Israelis and good for Palestinians too. Are you surprised that this is all coming to a head right now? I mean, it seems like the prime minister is trying to ward it off. And I have to say, frankly, many observers think that it's more about him and his own politics and staying in power than it is about a proper, just and fair and secure solution. You know, Christian, you and me have been following this uh, process for more years than we'd, we'd like to remember. And as you know, there's always been talk about demilitarized and security controls and things like this. This is what Israel is talking about. Mm -hmm. And especially after October 7th, to ask the Israeli public, the Israeli people, to say, uh, uh, we'll light pedal security, that security isn't the highest priority to keep our people safe, that is to ignore reality. And if the Palestinians really want to move forward with Israel, I think they have to be willing to understand those concerns, they are legitimate concerns, and that the idea that any uh, areas uh, next to Israel will have to be, there will have to be security arrangements that allow Israel to defend itself by itself if need be. Uh, that has to be the basis of any political settlements as we move forward. Now, I want to ask you about what, what is the result after 100 days in your war against Hamas? The French president said, the total destruction of Hamas, does anyone think that's possible? If that's that, the war will last 10 years. Let me be clear. We achieved an amazing success in November where we got almost half the hostages out. 110 people released precisely because of the military pressure Israel was applying. We will win this war and we will destroy the Hamas military machine. We'll do it, Christian, because we have no choice. Mark Regev, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And up next on the program, remembering the moment U.S.-led forces launched the first Gulf War, my report from Saddam Hussein's Iraq, and a warning from the past about Gaza today.
Welcome back. And from the archive this week, how the first Gulf War and the destruction it left behind echoes what Israel is leaving behind in Gaza today. It was the morning of January 17, 1991, 33 years ago, that Operation Desert Storm kicked off the campaign to oust Saddam Hussein's invading Iraqi forces from Kuwait. Saddam Hussein's forces will leave Kuwait. The legitimate government of Kuwait will be restored to its rightful place, and Kuwait will once again be free. I've told the American people before that this will not be another Vietnam. And I repeat this here tonight. Once the bombing was over, I met the people of Baghdad picking through the rubble as the long road to rebuilding their lives began. The sound of bombing has given way to the sound of banging. Iraqis start to sweep away the remains of the Allied bombardments and try to start anew. Dusting off the surfaces, replastering the walls, these merchants want to set up shop again. A sense of optimism exists despite the debris. The condition is good, so I could rebuild again. It takes two weeks to rebuild. But it'll take a lot longer to rebuild this area. These few houses that were hit three weeks ago were razed to the ground. Most of the inhabitants haven't returned yet. Those who have say they lost everything. This man says he has nothing left but the clothes he's wearing. I'm waiting for our government to help us to rebuild. Those we spoke to also expect help from countries with whom they've just been at war, particularly their Arab neighbors. People who live in Kuwait or in Saudi or Emirat, because we, we all people, we have uh, one language, one history, and we, we one people. These people say they will rebuild just as they did after their eight-year war with Iran. But this time, it won't be that easy. Officials here, as well as international experts, say this country's infrastructure could take years to recover from the damage done. There is still no electricity in Baghdad and other cities, except what's powered by private generators. The capital still has no fresh running water, so people are drawing untreated water from the river. The drainage system is backed up, and sewage is starting to spew into the streets. The mayor of Baghdad says all private and public services have ground to a halt, and warns of disease spreading when the weather gets warmer. As people start to lay the groundwork for the future, they say it might take a while to even get the basic rebuilding blocks. Officials say this cement factory used to produce a third of Iraq's total output. They say it'll be at least a year before production starts up again. Finding the means to rebuild may be difficult. Already billions of dollars in debt, some of Iraq's future oil profits may have to go towards rebuilding Kuwait. And the Allies have indicated that some of the economic sanctions will remain in force as long as Saddam Hussein remains in power. It all sounds so familiar amid the current crisis in the Middle East. Now, I had been there on the USS Kennedy, an aircraft carrier in the Red Sea, watching the fighter jets start the war on Iraq. And I can't help reflecting now on the parallels and unintended consequences. As we now know, the result of decades of bombing Saddam Hussein created decades of radical terrorist forces, including eventually ISIS. One of the fears about the Gaza war is that it too will create a dangerous backlash. 
Americans and other allies now know that, which is why the only way out of this endless and brutal cycle of violence, they say, is finally a just political solution. When we come back, more of your questions and my answers. Ask Amanpour is next. Welcome back. And finally, to our Q&A segment. So let's find out what's on your mind this week. Here's one from Gwen in Chicago, Illinois. As a war correspondent, I know you've seen much cruelty throughout the world. How are you able to cope with that and still do your job so well? Thank you. Okay, Gwen, it's true that we witness and report on some of the worst, most savage acts that people can, can commit against each other. Since October 7th, the horror that was done to Israeli civilians, to women and children, and to the women and children in Gaza has kept me awake many nights. But like all journalists on the scene, we have to somehow manage our feelings and emotions in order to put our full weight and our full strength into telling the story without fear nor favor and always remaining truthful, not neutral. That is all we have time for. If you want to ask me a question, scan the QR code on your screen right now or email askamanpour at cnn.com. And remember to tell us your name and where you're from. Don't forget, you can find all our shows online as podcasts at cnn.com slash podcast and on all other major platforms. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. Thanks for watching and see you again next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.